This week's TribCast is sponsored by Lone Star College Works for Texas, providing real-world workforce training in state-of-the-art facilities to meet employers' demands. Find out more at lonestar.edu. And Texas Biomed pioneers and shares scientific breakthroughs that protect our communities. Health starts with science. Health starts at Texas Biomed. Visit txbiomed.org for more. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for December 2nd, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. This week, I am joined by our politics reporter, James Buttergon. Hey, James. Hello. Hello. And our Health and Human Services reporter and also currently budget reporter, Karen Brooks-Harper. Hello, Karen. Thank you for your service. Thank you. The the uh, unenviable task of tracking the Texas budget this this legislative <laughs> session. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and a little about the legislature. Um, you know, for about eighty percent of the time in in Texas politics, Gre- Governor Greg Abbott is the dominant force. State ed- agencies and boards are filled with his appointees. He uses his executive orders and other powers of kind of gaining the attention of driving the conversation. But we are approaching the first half of an even, I mean, of an odd numbered year, which means it's getting close to the lieutenant governor's time. You know, the as the man who presides over the Senate, Dan Patrick controls what comes up for a vote. That means pretty much every bill that passes the legislature and heads on to Abbott's desk must do so with his implicit or tacit blessing, depending on the situation. If he doesn't like something, he can kill it. If he wants something, he can hold up other must-pass bills like the budget or legislation that keeps certain state agencies alive as leverage. So what he wants really matters over these next few months. And we got a pretty good preview of what matters to him this week when he called a press conference. One of my kind of favorite early signs of legislative season coming up, the the, the Dan Patrick Legislative Priorities press conference. James, you covered this press conference. Give us the the top line takeaways before we get into the specific issues. Yeah, I think uh, they're all pretty much uh, issues that you would expect uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick to uh, prioritize. Uh, Chief among them, property tax uh, relief is what he calls it. This has been an ongoing subject for him. It's how he kind of rose to power, how he got into the Senate and how he became the most powerful uh, lawmaker in the legislature. Um, um, Also on there was the electricity grid, uh, which he said is the most important issue other than taking care of the money. Uh, which with the budget surplus, which we're going to talk about later, um, and things like border security, um, things like you know uh, other things that he's mentioned in the past, like uh, reforming tenure in higher education. Previously, he said he wanted to cancel tenure at uh, in higher education um, institutions. Um, other things like tough on crime stuff. Uh, I think mandatory ten year uh, uh, sentences for crimes committed with the use of a gun uh, in any way um, and border security funding, uh, police funding. Uh, those are, I think, the major things that stood out. A couple of uh, election tweaks as well, um, but all things that I think are in his wheelhouse, things that have been, he has 
been vocal on. A couple of things that were sort of missing were things like school choice, uh, which we didn't hear a whole lot on, um, which is a little bit surprising, but that doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's not going to be an issue. It just means it wasn't on this one particular priorities list. Um, and uh, no stuff on, you know, trans kids or any of this book banning stuff. But again, that doesn't mean that it won't be a priority for him or other lawmakers. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to talk a little bit about what was missing in a little bit. But first, let's talk about the kind of headline topic, which I think is shaping up to be property tax cuts, reductions, relief, whatever it is you want to call it. Um, this, of course, has been a big item for uh, Governor Greg Abbott um, in the lead up to uh, the session as well. He has talked about wanting to spend half of the state's $27 billion surplus on property tax relief. Um, for context on what half of $27 billion looks like, that would be uh, basically spending more on property tax relief than the entire two-year budget of the state of Arkansas, um, <laughs> which is a pretty striking number. Texas, of course, a much bigger state than Arkansas. But Karen, I mean, you simultaneously with this press conference had, you know, been, we're writing up a story about the legislative budget board meeting, which, you know, the legislative budget board includes Dan Patrick. Um, it's, you know, really kind of set some rules for the legislature going into the session and things like that. And, you know, came out of that meeting and then even more so after Dan Patrick's press conference with some questions, questions about whether that spending half that surplus was, you know, politically viable. Tell, tell us a little bit more about the, the situation. Um, you know, this $27 billion that, that they have to spend that they weren't expecting to have is basically what we're talking about when we talk about that surplus. And that could, there, there's indicators that that could go even higher by the time Comptroller Glenn Hager makes his budget revenue estimate and um, and spending estimate, you know, in, in January before the session starts. Technically, the lawmakers can spend, they can choose to spend all $27 billion of that, right? There's nothing telling them they can't, you know, it's just a question of what they're willing to do in order to do that. Yeah. So are they going to bust their own spending cap, which they they just set? The LBB is led by Patrick and a Speaker Chair, I mean, sorry, Speaker Chairman, Speaker Phelan, and then, you know, the Appropriations chair Chairpersons on both sides of the aisle and several legislators. So, they impose this, you know, 12.3% increase on their spending next year from budget to budget based on what they determine to be the economy growth in Texas. You can bust that cap if you want to spend more than what's looking like between 12 and $15 billion, depending on which cap you're looking at. Um, and, and you would only need a, a simple majority of the legislature to bust the spending cap for property tax relief, um, you know, the way the law works. Whether they're going to do that, the political will to do that, Patrick doesn't have the will to do that. He says he he's would not support busting the spending cap. Um, you know the law, the grassroots say even the conservative grassroots say the spending. I mean, property tax reform would be the only thing that they would support busting the spending cap for. It's very much tends to be a conservative principle, although not always. Um, it tends to affect the incumbents who vote for it, no matter what their politics are. Um, depending again on the context, busting the cap wouldn't, I mean, uh, uh, busting the cap wouldn't necessarily be the only way that they could get to that 
you know, half the surplus being spent, which would add up to right about the amount they're allowed to add to the budget next year, right? Um, what they could do is some budget strategies that move money into different funds that aren't covered by these spending caps. They could do constitutional amendments, exemptions. They could, you know, uh, legislate use of the, the state's various savings accounts. Um, but, you know, the bigger the number gets, the harder it is to finesse that. And the closer you get to just having to take a vote that may or may not be an easy sell. So um, like a lot of budget answers, that seems a little bit long and convoluted, but, um, but yeah. you know, you have Dan Patrick, you know, who, as you just said, has influence <laughs> during the session saying no to a spending cap. So um, I guess there's a big roadblock. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of philosophical divide within the Republican Party. Um, you know, your your story kind of quoting some people from the grassroots, folks like Matt Rinaldi, who is a, you know, chairman of the state GOP, but also I think represents a very kind of Trumpist uh, hard right wing of the party as well, you know, coming out seeming to endorse the idea, but others kind of being skeptical. And you, you see Dan Patrick, you know, raise one of the reasons why he was skeptical or didn't like the idea was because he thought it set a bad precedent of, you know, you, we don't basically saying we don't want to be in the habit of busting the spending cap, even if it's to cut taxes. But, you know, it's kind of an interesting reflection of just kind of what's happening in the Republican Party right now, because you have that kind of traditional fiscal conservative wing um, that Dan Patrick seems to be um you know, aligning with at least at this point uh, in the run up to the legislative session. But then you also have, I think, a group, you know, a group that maybe associates itself quite closely with Trump that is um, not as concerned about spending. Um, they do like tax cuts. They do like some of these other fights. But the, you know, the I, you, you like haven't heard as much about government spending being out of control as you have in the past. So an interesting little breakdown there. Yeah, I think you, I, I think, I, I think they would all say that, um, that property tax isn't really, relief isn't really government spending if it's yep. going to come back to the people that, and, and that's how they get around that, you know, being anti-bloated government while also being okay with breaking the spending cap if they needed for property tax reform because they don't view it as prop as, as government spending in the way they would for say medicaid you know? and it, 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 go ahead james I, I think it all gets convoluted though because like i mean then you have uh abbott who obviously wants property tax uh help there uh for homeowners and he he's not necessarily a trumpy guy um he's True. like uh, yeah he's sort of kept this space from trump um but he's the guy pushing for half of the surplus to be used on it i think speaker Phelan is one of the people who you would line up as a more traditional fiscal conservative business oriented conservative um and he's proposing spending um at least a significant chunk of the money, at least some part of it, on infrastructure and one-time spending uh, on roads and 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 stuff like that. Um, I think he sort of represents that. It, it it is kind of like I said, it is convoluted because yeah, yeah. Uh, Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, is he's sort of the more like further right wing of the party. But in this particular instance, he's being very fiscally conservative, saying, "Hey, we shouldn't spend all the money on." 
uh, property taxes, even though that is his like number one issue like for forever. Um, and he's also saying we should increase the amount of money we can save in the rainy day fund. Um, so I'm not sure what kind of it's all about. I sort of just took him at his word on uh, when the press conference happened that that's what he wants. But I don't know if there's something behind the scenes happening there as to as to why uh, it is. Like I said, it's it's kind of convoluted and everybody's kind of like in weird places. Yeah, you're right. It's 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 less about yeah. you know, people breaking down in into those groups and more about maybe different priorities among right. The Republican Party, you've got the business friendly side that would like to see things like, you know, infrastructure improvements. You've got the fiscally conservative side in the traditional sense, which means like, you know, limiting your spending, balancing your budget. And then, you know, a big group that just says we want tax cuts. That's the most important thing. Well, and Abbott's not out there saying bust the spending cap to make my dreams come true either. He's saying this is what I want to do. It's y'all's problem to figure out how to do it. Right. Ultimately, you know, busting a spending cap and which most people don't really even know what that is anyway, honestly, you know, that's a hard, that's hard to communicate to anybody beyond the grassroots that they busted a spending cap in a $270 billion budget or $290 billion budget or whatever it would end up being next, next cycle. Um, So, uh, so, you know, for him, the short-term problem of making a vote like that, which can you know, come back and bite him in the primaries if it's not messaged right, it's not, it's less his problem. You know, longer term, it might be government spending, but government spending increases every year anyway, typically, for the most part. And the other thing is the legislature isn't in the habit of busting the spending cap. They do it very rarely. And they have decades of experience with this constitutional cap and, and figuring ways around it. So, you know, there's a new cap that they passed last year or last session that, you know, in addition to the constitutional cap, it's a little stronger in terms of what it takes to break it, but it also doesn't include property tax reform, and it doesn't include disaster relief funding, which is also what they would spend on Operation Lone Star, which we haven't even gotten into in any of this yet. Um, so, you know, that's all exempt anyway. It's not exempt from this constitutional one that's been around since the 70s, but, um, but you know, so there's all kinds of, they can shove funds into dedicated revenue streams that aren't covered by the constitutional one and they can they can move stuff through the the enterprise fund and they can you know there's all kinds of things they can and they cannot spend any of it at all you know um so you know that's there's no bill to look at yet so we don't really know what where their minds are and whatever they say in press conferences about saving money in the rainy day fund or creating homestead extensions or we're going to ask people to propose plans like this who knows what's going to look like yeah, you know, I think it's also just good to always remember when we talk about taxes in the state is, you know, th- a lot of this is a convoluted conversation because of the way that Texas taxes its citizens, of course, you know, um, the state does not have an income tax. And so it gets its money through various other sources, a, a, a rather large property tax, sales tax, franchise tax, and things like that. And when you see those different taxes, um, the one you don't really hear a lot of complaints. I don't, at least, about the sales tax or, or even really the franchise tax. Although there are some people who, you know, aren't uh, in 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 love with that system um, as well. But the the main complaint you hear is property taxes, and of course, the state doesn't collect property taxes. It's local governments that collect property taxes, school districts, cities, counties, and things like that. But 
you know, the biggest chunk of that tax is the uh, school property tax, which climbs, you know, due in part due to, you know, inversely with the amount that the state invests in its own kind of funds towards schools. And, and so, you know, the, the, I would think that one way of perhaps lowering property taxes using a surplus to lower property tax would be to send a bunch of money from that surplus into, you know, the school funding formula so as to not, you know, and then somehow kind of lower that down from the local level. The problem with that is then what do you do the next session when there's not a $27 billion surplus? And and then you got to figure out how to make up that money. And, and, and it's just a very complicated thing. And I think there's going to be a lot of negotiation that's going to have to happen in order to make that all work. I mean, what you're talking about is what the governor has proposed using the surplus to buy down MNO taxes. Um, yeah. But yeah, the part that he leaves out is that, yeah, this is a one-time infusion. Like, well, there's no guarantee that in the next biennium, there will be the same surplus. And so if you're putting it in this time, there's no guarantee you'll be able to do it. It's it's a one-time sort of help here when we know that property taxes are, I mean, they're, they're going to keep taxing you. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, sales taxes too, and the budget surplus mostly comes from the sales tax. Um, and, and what Speaker Phelan has talked about is that we have to acknowledge that um, because it's coming from sales tax, it's coming from people hurting with inflation, right? Um, and so how do you distribute that money back to people, back to the taxpayers equitably um, in sort of spending that surplus? If you only provide property tax uh, cuts or whatever you want to call them, a containment, then you are only providing um relief or some type of payback to people who own property, who own homes. There's a lot of renters who will not benefit from that. So I think that's another part of the discussion um, that hasn't been talked about a whole lot, but that the speaker is obviously talking about and and in conjunction with his focus on infrastructure, which will no doubt benefit the state and which the state needs. James, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, I mean, we're, what you're basically talking about is taking money that came from a regressive tax that the poor people pay a higher percentage of their revenue from and giving it to reducing people's property tax bills, which will most likely benefit wealthier people, people who own homes and properties. And, you know, I, I mean, you could make the argument, right, that you lower property taxes, that that lowers the cost for landlords who could then lower their rent. But in the kind of rent environment we're in, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's not direct. Not, it's not direct it's relief, not right? Market driven. It's it's just not property. It's not expense driven. As a former landlord myself, I can tell you that that's not. It's just so market driven that those rents don't. If if a landlord is 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 saving a few hundred bucks, you know, a, a house payment on property taxes suddenly, or a year, it's <laughs> just more likely what some of this is going to look like for some of them. They're not going to be passing those along. They're going to be they're going to be probably raising the rent to make up for the inflationary costs they have to pay for maintenance and and uh, and other things. And 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 they also have franchise. You know, I mean, you know, business, you know, things to deal with. So. Um, it, it it's you know this whole argument about which I was about to make that point if you didn't Matthew was is about landlords passing those savings on to renters it's just it's it doesn't happen yeah. <laughs> doesn't happen.
All right, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. Philanthropy advocates work to advance education policy, cradle to career, is more important than ever. Learn more at philanthropyadvocates.org. And Texas Original. Did you know medical cannabis is legal in Texas? Get a prescription and start your journey to relief today by visiting texasoriginal.com. Okay, so James, the other big thing that came up, well, there were quite a few other big things, but number two on the list as you presented it in your story uh, earlier this week was talk about the power grid and basically Dan Patrick's um, insistence you know, contrary to some of the things the governor has said over the the, the months and years since the, the winter storm, that Texas still remains quite vulnerable to, you know, grid problems and, and incidents that came up uh, during that storm. What is he proposing? Yeah. And to be clear, there were like a list of 21 priorities. You know, listeners can go read about it on our website. And I'm sure they already have if they listen to TripCast. Um, but yeah, number two, and and the lieutenant governor was pretty adamant about this, this, is that he wants to focus on the reliability of the grid. He wants to focus on in um, investing or uh, building or pushing people to build out more uh, natural natural gas production uh, because he believes that that's the most reliable type of energy. That goes in contrast to, as our colleague Aaron Douglas has covered, what um, the PUC chair and what the ERCOT leaders have said uh, that they want to do, which is that they wanted to remain techno- technology agnostic, um, not choose uh, renewables over um, natural gas or over coal or over whatever type of production. Um, And so that's setting up sort of a battle there. But, you know, people have obviously on Twitter, um, where the most um, illuminated of debates happens, uh, have been saying that, you know, well, you know, I thought we had fixed the grid and all this stuff. But, you know, I had to point out that the lieutenant governor has like, been consistent about this like he has never said he he is alone in the big three in being the only one to say that we still need considerable work to be done on the grid um he has not been the go along to get along kind of type and particularly on this issue he has not uh been with abbott or Phelan. he has warned that you know that there's still a lot of work to be done on the grid um, he was the only one pushing for a clawback of those billions of dollars that were spent in the energy market, which would have been, to be fair, a, a sort of a disaster to sort of try to claw back. Uh, but from a ratepayer's perspective, obviously, you want that money back because we're all going to be paying higher energy bills because of that. And he was the only one pushing for that among the big three. Um, so this is consistent uh, with what the lieutenant governor has said in the past. I think it's probably a more fair assessment of where we are uh, rather than the, you know, election campaign claims from the the Abbott campaign's perspective that everything was fixed and everything was rosy and we didn't have to worry about it. Because, again, we we all know, right, just from the smell test, we were being asked to conserve energy in the summer. Um, and, And so I think it's consistent and I think it's a more fair assessment of where we are as a state uh, with regards to our um, uh, electric grid. Yeah, you know, one of the games I think we always end up finding ourselves playing during legislative sessions, um, I think this will be my fifth or sixth one that I'll be involved in coverage on. And I feel like every single time we at some point are asking ourselves, 
is Dan Patrick wants X or Dan Patrick wants Y. And is he willing to kind of blow up the session in order to push for it? Is he willing to kind of push for, you know, a special session or hold something out to force a special session? And with that in mind, you had a quote in your story in which he said, we can't leave here next spring unless we have a plan for more natural gas power. That felt to me like a little bit of a message being sent early on. Yeah, it certainly felt that way at the press conference. And our good friend Bob Garrett from the Dallas Morning News followed up and said, hey, uh, does that mean you are going to force a special session? There was a kind of funny interaction from Dan Patrick saying, well, Bob, you're always looking for the negative when we've got rainbows over here. It's full of rainbows. But, you know, the lieutenant governor sort of shot back. He didn't, you know, lean into that. But he didn't shy away from it. He didn't say, like, no, that's not what I'm saying. He said it would be very hard for him to see himself leaving and that he would think it would be irresponsible of him to leave uh, next spring if the possibility of another winter storm, Yuri, was still on the table. Um, And he said, I'm sorry if that makes other people people feel uncomfortable, but that's where he's at. I think another thing that I will say about the lieutenant governor is that we are, you know, we as, you know, political observers are always sort of watching the like sort of um, cloak and dagger game that there is sometimes among politicians and the sneaky legislation that there is. I don't think we have to really worry about that with Dan Patrick. He's very clear about what he wants. We're just sort of trying to like look for things and see like what is happening. He is very clear about what he wants. Um, he's putting down his flag. He was the first one. He usually is, I think, the first one to put down the flag, at least in the last couple of sessions that I've covered. Um, and he's saying this is this is where I'm at um, now, whether the speaker and whether the governor will be in the same place. I doubt that. Um, and again, the governor is the only one who can call the special session. And there, I don't think that there is a, a need to do any of this stuff. So um, on this particular issue, I think he has a, a little bit of a weaker hand. But he's got stronger hands in other places. So, you know, don't be the horse trading. And I'm sure that we'll see in the 140 days of the legislature what happens. Yeah, I do love that about Dan Patrick. You know, say, you know, no matter what your opinion is about his politics, he tells you what he thinks and, uh, you know, uh, does it uh, pretty openly, which is, uh, as a journalist, uh, something that we uh, we definitely like there. So, okay. too, when he decides when to say things like that, you know, I think that he knows exactly who's listening to him when he says, we're not going to leave here. And mm-hmm. even if he won't say, I'll force a special session, it sounds like what he's saying, right? But he's not going to go there yet because I think he knows that the uncertainty of something that strong is going to be reverberating when the session starts. And, you know, I think he likes nobody really hearing him say those words yet, but assuming that's what he means. So there are, uh, yeah, he's he's pretty shrewd about that stuff too. All right. So, James, we just talked about two headline issues. And on both of the issues, he seems to be pretty clearly not on the exact same page as the governor. How how big of a deal do you think that is? Oh, I don't think it's a huge deal. I mean, I think we expect uh, that jostling between him and and the governor that's grown to be sort of their dance. They're together on most of like the big issues. You know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, Protestants and Catholics, they're they're very close, but they're they're very different on the like other little tiny issues, you know. Um, but uh, 
this has been a routine dance for them, you know, and the the lieutenant governor is a little bit more far right and he keeps pushing the governor uh, that way. Um, But no, I think this is expected. I don't think there are any huge surprises. And there are also other things that they're super aligned with, you know, Operation Lone Star funding. Uh, Lieutenant Governor says he's they're ready to keep continue doing it. He said, I think he said that he wanted that in the base budget so we don't have to play with the surplus for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But other things like the governor has called for um, a parental bill of rights uh, dealing with what kids are being taught in the schools. There's uh, conservative activists have been uncomfortable with the discussion of race, gender, sex um, in public schools in Texas. And uh, the governor has been uh, has said he wants to do something about that. Lieutenant Governor back that. Um, so they're together on a lot of things. It's just, uh, you know, a couple of things that where there are, you know, pretty, pretty stark differences. Indeed, indeed. You know, I was, uh, I'm going to, you know, take a point of privilege right now as a former higher education reporter to also just bring back up the, um, the the two higher ed pieces that he talked about the tenure, which, you know, is interesting to see in a, a big fight. But as you mentioned, maybe not as strong of language this time around as when, however many months ago it was where he basically seemed to be wanting to end tenure for, for, um, um for for university professors but then also talking about uh one billion dollar endowments for the universities of houston and texas tech which um would be a pretty transformative major investment in those two universities that um i i think should not go unremarked upon it it does seem like there's a a good amount of momentum building you know around the legislature around the capital for that idea yeah, uh, and and this was all set off, if you remember, by uh, Texas announcing uh, <laughs> whatever was that last year, or this year that they were moving to the SEC. So um, when when the horns are getting their butt kicked by the SEC, we can all <laughs> thank them for the headache that we have um, <laughs> at the legislature. Trying what, to a, do- what a thank you for your sacrifice, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, and I think this there certainly has been momentum gained on this non-puff endowment fund for other institutions like Texas like the University of Houston, which are pretty big universities um, that have been asking for this kind of investment in it. Uh, Rural lawmakers and lawmakers in other big places, obviously Houston, a very big urban place that's pretty powerful in the legislature have been calling for this. The governor, I think, has backed this. So it it does seem to be uh, gaining some steam there. I don't think it'll be a major point of controversy but I don't know the logistics of how that will work. I think that's something Kate McGee will uh, can talk more about. But and the other thing is that the, 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 the um, tenure thing, which he was very, very strong on uh, back in February when he first brought it up. This one, he, this time he kind of glossed over it. <laughs> um, and on the on the list of priorities, it was more reform than ending it. Obviously, the big challenge with that is that it makes it very difficult to recruit and retain world class faculty. Um, and, you know, someone brought that up at the at the press conference and uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick basically said, like, you know what, chancellors and the administrators are trying to get rid of all these woke professors. <laughs> they just won't say it, but I can say it. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think world class faculty are obviously very prized at higher education institutions. They're very highly prized by the governor um, who has talked about his improvements and talked about the improvements to um higher education institutions and the faculty that we have in his campaign trail. Um, So 
you know, I, I'm not sure how much gain that tenure fight will have. I don't think we've seen anybody in the House side talk about it, and we haven't seen the governor talk about it, um, but certainly still a priority for the lieutenant governor. So we actually have heard at the Texas Tribune Festival, Dave Phelan was asked about this, and he was opposed to it. And I thought he had a pretty interesting reason oh, yeah. why, which was that he thought it might make it harder to recruit conservative faculty to these schools. Like basically this idea, I'm I'm sort of putting words into his mouth here, but the, the idea seemed to be, you know, on these college campuses, if you you can get into a lot of trouble for expressing conservative ideas and tenure will protect those professors from you know that that higher you know that elite wokeness that happens on the college campuses you know (laughs) i thought that was a pretty interesting compelling argument for conservatives in the in the tenure discussion there i think kate Kate had sort of covered that in some of her stories around that, that it actually would have the inverse effect like you would be putting at risks a little bit more conservative professors yeah So what about what wasn't on the list? I mean, school choice really stands out, although I did see some kind of debate on Twitter whether there was some kind of vague mention to it or not. But it was definitely not a high profile headline. What, What do you make of that? Uh, you know, I, I talked over this with the politics team, and I, I don't think we should make a whole lot of it. I think the the push for school choice among uh, grassroots conservatives and uh, folks on the far right of the Republican Party who are advocates for that um, is still very, very strong. Um, they're still pushing for it. But I think they're perhaps, you know, to Karen's point about how shrewd the lieutenant governor is, Perhaps they're sort of saving their ammo on that and not necessarily needing to talk about that until it's the right point and until they have the strategies, just given how the speaker, I think in that same interview, uh, Matthew talked about how there's there's no votes for that or there's not the votes that they need for that in the House. Um, So, yeah, I wouldn't make too much of it. I still expect that to be uh, an issue. The other one that I was surprised that there was nothing about was like this book ban stuff um, at schools and any more legislation on, um, on on trans people in the state. Um, but again, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if those issues came Certainly. up. There's been already <laughs> numerous bills filed. On Certainly. That. Yeah. I don't know, Karen, did anything else stand out to you? No, I think you covered it. I mean, the the lack of the, the super divisive red meat social issues on that just tells me that, you know, election season is over and that it's going into the session. I'm sure we'll, I'm sure that'll all get ramped up, you know, Again, it's in the bills. I mean, so I mean yeah. they've already filed those in the bills. So, you know, where Patrick's going to be on that is probably fairly predictable. Um, and uh, and we'll you know we'll see how far that goes this session. Yeah, yeah, you know, I I've I've been thinking about this about how in 2017 the legislative session was dominated by the bathroom bill and these fights over conservative issues, at least in what was talked about. Then in 2019 you had what everyone kept calling the bread and butter session about property taxes and um, and uh, uh, things like that. Um, then in 2021, we had another, everyone called it the red meat session, you know, and are we on a little pattern here where every, it's like every other session goes between, you know, we're now heading back into this one where it's property taxes again, it's the power grid, like maybe this won't be the the red meat session it's it's probably too soon to say that the skepticism i'm seeing in those cases <laughs> is overwhelming <laughs> all right well you know what i'm just really session that never ever ever is so. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> 
I, I got to say, I'm just really happy to be talking about the legislative session again. I know it's going to be a lot of work for us, but I love the session. It's fun to cover. It's interesting. You know, it's it's right in the Texas Tribune wheelhouse. So I can't wait and uh, really enjoyed reading both of you alls stories this week, kind of helping set the table for that session. So um, thank you, James. Thank you, Karen. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, Lone Star College, Texas Biomed, Philanthropy Advocates, in Texas Original. We'll talk to you all next week. Twenty twenty three is approaching fast, and before we know it, a new legislative session will gavel in. Get an inside look at what's ahead for Texas when you join us December eighth in Austin or online for the Texas Tribune's preview of the twenty twenty three legislative session. Hear from newly elected officials, incumbent lawmakers, and more on what to expect next year. Learn more and RSVP at texastribune.org slash events.